0: What is part of our brand, meaning it can't change? And what are just business decisions you make? And those, the things that are the latter are important, but they should change all the time. You know. And so if you get those things wrong, you end up stuck in something that you believe is critical to who you are that doesn't need to be, and it holds back your growth. If you get it wrong the other way, you give up something that's really core to who you are, and people feel you're inauthentic.
1: I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rule book from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today is David Rubin, the Chief Marketing Officer of the New York Times. I'm joined by Dean as co-host today, who knows David from their time together at Unilever really fascinating conversation. So David's been at the New York Times for six years. He actually created, or he, you know, along with the leadership team there, created the CMO role, and he's the first CMO at the New York Times. We talk a bit about how that happened, why it happened, and what he's done with that remit since he's become CMO. But David has a very long and tenured career as a marketer. He was the global head of brand for Pinterest. He spent 15 years at Unilever. Um, And so we talk a lot about a lot of different things, things that he's learned along the way and things that he's applied very successfully given the growth of the brand and the business in the New York Times over the last couple of years. We talk about how to unlock an emotional connection with your customers to drive growth. And it's really interesting hearing him talk about it because the New York Times is, of course, not just competing with other other paid subscription platforms but they're also competing with free news and free content so the importance of brand and the emotional connection is that much more important you have to over index that much more for a business like the new york times he talks about how he's been able to drive a digital transformation agenda at the new york times what's required to make that happen within any business and then i love a bit of a a bit of a conversation that we have around this idea of you know the new york times is 100 plus years old the definition of incumbent all these challengers popping up in the space we talk a bit about the acquisition of the athletic as well but really david talks about how he views the new york times and is trying to instill this mindset in his team of they're a challenger in a new category of paid for news and journalism and so you know, it really comes down to a lot of what we talk about. Where every business can be a challenger. It comes down to how you think and act, not how old you are or how big you are as a business. So, please enjoy my conversation with David Rubin, CMO of the New York Times. Hey, David, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you. Was excited to be here. Thanks for for having me on. Of
1: course. And Dean, gotta welcome my illustrious co-host. How are you?
2: Hey. Hey, guys. Hey, David. Long time no see. Yeah, nice to see you, Dean. Always good to be back together.
1: So you guys go back to your time at Unilever, is that right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not even sure I can guess what year. It's been at least a decade. <laughs> at least a decade. Yeah. But I'd
2: like so, to consider David as a lifelong friend. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Dean. There you
1: go. Right at, at least at, at least doing the occasional podcast together. So, mm-hmm. David, maybe you could just introduce yourself real quick. Obviously, CMO of the New York Times, a brand that I think most people have heard of. But maybe you can talk a bit about your career path. You were at Unilever for a long time, you were at Pinterest for a bit. Tell us a bit about how you got to where you are today.
0: So I spent I after business school, I went to Unilever, ended up staying 15, 16 years, depends how you want to count it. But I did two main things there. I did the launch of Axe Body Spray into the US, which is where how I met Dean. And then I did the turnaround of their US hair care business, so their, their beauty portfolio in the US. So I did that. I, also, yeah, I did a couple of the little things, but those were the big main things I did. And I left there in 2014 and went to Pinterest as their head of brand. My job was to help them expand who they were for particularly internationally, but not exclusively. And um, after a couple of years of doing that, I came to the New York Times. And I have been here, it'll be six years in April. Um, I started as the head of brand, then became their first chief marketing officer, at least that we're aware of in 100 plus year history. And then uh, in a time when a lot of companies are questioning the role of the CMO, they added one, which is interesting, after not having one for a century. And, uh, and then now I'm the head of uh, marketing and communications. So the two together, we can certainly talk about why that is. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, where I am. The, the, the through line for me is, you know, what, what I see the role of marketing, what I like doing is, is helping a group of people um, and leading a, a company to unlock its emotional connection with their customer um, and potential customers and to do that to drive growth. So, uh, you know, at Unilever, I, I said, I, I like turning the mundane into the magical you know the times i wouldn't call mundane but news is a sea of sameness and our job is to help you understand why not only is the new york times different from other news sources you can get but so different that you would buy it over free you know just picture in any other industry we're not only competing with competitors but we're competing with people who don't charge at all so to you know the the bar you've got to get people to believe you're different when a lot of your alternatives are, are 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 free is is really high and so the fact that we've been as successful as we have been in recent years is i think really a you know a testament to how good the product is
1: so i definitely want to dive into that and i love the concept of unlocking the emotional connection to drive business growth but i'd actually love to go back to to the extent that you can share what was the conversation around creating a CMO role for the New York Times? Like you said, in, in a world where a lot of businesses are kind of leaning away for that or, or maybe questioning the value of a CMO and the average tenure of a CMO is going, has gone down to the level that it is, how did you and the executive team at the New York Times decide to create this role and put you in it?
0: Well, you know, to be honest, the after I had been there a couple of years and with the, the growth we were having, that wasn't the harder part of the conversation. The harder part, I think, was the discussion of having a brand role at all, you know, before I joined. And frankly, you know, I share this that, you know, it took a little bit to convince me, not because I didn't believe in the New York Times brand. I, I absolutely, I've always loved the brand. I just didn't think of media as a place, two things. One is I didn't think of media as a place the, for marketers like me would go. And the second thing was, is I had just come from Pinterest and I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to be in a digital high growth company. And that wasn't necessarily my perception of the New York Times. Um, and actually, when I met with my, my now boss, Meredith Levian, who is now the chief executive officer of the New York Times, Meredith convinced me that, you know, this was really just a, a digital subscription business and that we were actually becoming a, a consumer product, obviously a digital one versus a physical one but a consumer product and so that really convinced me that that this was a place I would have gone you know and and it's been totally true i mean i spend all my time thinking about how we get people to get digital subscriptions and we've gone from a few million you know subscriptions to now over 8 million subscriptions and actually 10 million if you include the purchase of the athletic so you know to give you some idea back in 2011 when the Times was putting in a paywall, most pundits thought that was not a good idea. Those who did think it was a good idea, the most bullish said, maybe they'll get to a million subscribers. Today, the Times has four businesses that are over a million subscribers. You've got the core New York Times subscription, you've got a cooking product that's paid, got our games product and The Athletic, which is a recent acquisition. And even within our core product, we have over a million subscribers outside the US. So the, the scale of the business and the growth rate of the business is just very different than people thought would be possible. And I frankly got lucky with my timing that I joined right as that inflection point was happening.
1: So I was at Forbes. Actually, I was at Forbes.com because back in the day, it was literally a separate business in a separate office. It was a few years before the New York Times put up the paywall, but I remember those conversations and being in the media world when then as this whole, you know, web 2.0 wave started to crash. So uh, David would love to kind of pick your brain a little bit as a very senior marketer. What are some of the brands that you are very curious about or interested in right now and why?
0: You know, look, uh, it, you and I, we, the three of us were talking about this a little bit before we started. I'm very curious to see what comes next for, for say, a Peloton. I think there's a lot of brands in a, in, in a similar position of, you know, look, no hotter brand from the last half decade or so. Um, and I think they have I think they're now in a spot where they've got to figure out what they mean to people and what they mean to their employees and 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 what do you do when the number of the business decisions change and so we'll talk about some of this in the context of our own company but the the idea of you know how you articulate your mission in a way that motivates both employees and customers, the idea of of how your mission integrates with your business and that they're not separate things, you know, divorced from each other. Those are all things I think they're going to, you know, they w- be curious to see, particularly for a company with a with a strong track record of of, of really powerful marketing. What do they do next, um, and how do they how do they you know reignite their growth? Um, so I'm, I'm interested in you know, just as a student of the game to see what happens.
1: Yeah, me too. Lots of change going on, and it is it is it's it's always interesting to see how brands go through crisis. I think much like people in some ways, kind of the true metal comes out in a way, and so a lot of it, while in some cases, they didn't do themselves any favors on the advertising side with some of the decisions that they made really it's you know it's not it's not a problem with the brand. There's a problem with the supply chain and the product and all this stuff. And so it's going to be interesting to see how they do or don't rally behind the mission and the purpose and the values of the brand and, and see if they're able to rebuild it or get bought.
0: Well, totally agree. And coming, and coming back to, to, to us for a minute, one of the lessons of the Times' success in recent years is that you really need a, a, a dramatic platform in order to really transform. You can't do it halfway, and then in some ways, modest success is the biggest enemy of change. And so, what's the old adage? Never, never squander a good crisis. You know, the I think the idea of how do you use your challenging moments to really define who you are, and 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 rally your team, and and rally your customer base, and and ignite growth. And I think the certainly the Times' this story was one of you know in in 2014, 2015. We were doing okay coming out of that 2011 window, but we weren't really growing at the pace we wanted to. And in 2014, we had a uh, something called the Innovation Report, which was um, our now publisher, who is a reporter in the newsroom, wrote an internal memo about the need to really get our digital act in order. And it was a horrible uh, moment that that, in, in a bit of an irony... That meant that note got leaked to BuzzFeed and published for everyone, and what turned out to be a couple of bad days turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to the Times because that public accountability of the the you know the self critical piece really rallied us to change and it made us really commit to being a subscription first business um, and then led to a strategy a year later of journalism worth paying for and that's what's really unlocked the growth, but it but it took a little bit seeing that. We really needed dramatic change, and I think that that's a you know, it's just a lesson from us that I think is interesting.
2: I like to pick on the the point, David, about keeping the brand relevant, keeping it very very modern and and you know, very attractive to a whole bunch of people, you know, and kind of broaden the the base. It would be an absolute <laughs> disappointment on the part of my family if I didn't ask you about Wardle. You know, because uh, we are just literally obsessed with the game. I'm obsessed with the game. And you know, I know that the Times has been popular with word games, like spelling bee, your crosswords. Um, so far, we're really appreciating the fact that it's not behind your paywall. And there's a debate about, did the Times make Wordle harder by introducing new, more complex, less common words? Because there were some days when some people struggled to make it uh, even on the sixth try. Tell, me about, tell us about Wordle, you know?
0: So, well, first of all, thank you. By the way, uh, that was a, a nice pitch for all of our games. So um, I'm going to have to re- put a note in the back of my head to make Dean our spokesperson. You know, the, a lot to unpack in that. I think the first thing I'll say is on your point about sort of making a brand relevant, I think that as soon as you make that your objective, you mess things up, right? The, you try in ways that people can see through particularly in the modern world where they your your intentions come through pretty clearly at least with a little bit of time what we're always looking for is you know our mission is to seek the truth and help people understand the world and we see games as part of that sort of process of understanding you know playing is one way to appreciate the world around you in a new way and so we've had a games business frankly crosswords are I don't know when Crosswords entered newspapers, but it's long before I was reading one. And so the idea of games being a part of a of an engagement suite in a newspaper is something that's been around a long time. We've had a Crosswords app for a while. As I said a little earlier, we now have uh, over a million subscribers to our games app, and You know the team that works on that saw the the hit that Wordle was and was able to you know bring it into our into our family and I think the I can say uh, which Jonathan Knight who's the uh, the person who who looks after games so expertly said very clearly we did not make. I, I know all the noise, but we, we did not make the, um, the words harder. In fact, the words you're playing were picked before us. <laughs> if anything, we have we have made a couple of changes to the word dictionary with the intent of making them easier. We moved removed words like Agora is one we've shared that was in the list that we felt was a little too obscure. So it's just a little bit, it's, it's actually a good example of the power of brand, people seeing something that they want to see that was part of the natural cycle of the game. But the idea behind the the acquisition is just that, you know, we're looking for things that matter to people in news and information on a daily and on a daily basis. And Wordle is something that tens of millions of people are playing, and it gives us, you know, it's a it, it fit very well with our existing platform.
1: So the thing that I find most fascinating about that acquisition and the athletic acquisition to a certain extent is how quickly it seemed to happen. Because I think it's one thing to kind of have a strategy of, hey, we're looking for these opportunities, our business is about this, but it's another to move incredibly quickly to go after and you know bring those types of businesses into the fold of kind of a more established incumbent business. So I'm guessing there's not too much that you can talk about with that, but I just wanted to call that out as I think that's super impressive to see kind of a more traditional incumbent business really move like a challenger when it comes to these types of acquisitions. But maybe we can use that as a jumping off point to a question that maybe you can speak to a little bit more or in more detail is, you know, I'm clearly getting in how you're talking and what you're saying, David, there's a very clear, you know, mission, vision, set of values, strategy that's defined in your, in your head. And, you know you are the you're the brand guy you're the CMO as it should be like i'm sure you have all those talking points and you've run over them many 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 times how do you keep your team and i'm guessing a big part of your responsibility as CMO is also the internal piece of it and employees at the new york times as well as the external audience you have and potential audience you want to reach how do you keep everybody clear and aligned on what you know the mission needs to be and what matters most within it
0: Yeah. So it's, you know, like, like we were talking about, I mean, the times has been around for a hundred and well over a hundred years. One of the things that's true about the company is a lot of these things were known, but they were, they weren't explicit. They weren't written down. Um, And so what I think has really changed since that 2014 moment, and it's been on a gradual, but increasing path is to make the, you know, make the implicit explicit. Um, It's one of our principles is that there is a value. There's a power in having not just the same concept, but the same words. And so I don't want to put too much credit in this, but like, you know, one of the first things my team did when I arrived is we wrote a brand book for the whole company. Now, as a company that's not marketing driven in any way, shape or form, that wasn't something they would have done before. And so the, the power in doing that Was to give everybody, you know, so when you do have empowered teams working in a cross functional way and the CMO is not in the room, which is almost all meetings, almost all the time, how do you have them able to sort of work through their different tension points and different perspectives with a set of principles? And I think that's what we've really been able to do. Some of that predates me. Um, So, as I said before, we had this path forward in 2015, which was really the moment when. While it wasn't framed this way, the the company figured out what really mattered to the brand and what didn't. You know, the if you go back far enough in in this journey, you know, people thought that the printed paper was part of the brand or the printed word was part of the brand. Today, we've got podcasts and television shows. You know, the Daily is one of the most listened to podcasts in America. The Framing Britney Spears was a, you know, a really powerful. Documentary that we did. We do infographics and um, visual journalism. You know things that have have really let us connect with the audience in a different way. And but it's still about fulfilling the same mission. And so the thing we needed to decide is what is part of our what is part of our brand, meaning it can't change. And what are just business decisions you make. And those the things that are the latter are important, but they should change all the time you know? And so if you get those things wrong, you end up stuck in something that you believe is critical to who you are that doesn't need to be. And it holds back your growth. If you get it wrong the other way, you give up something that's really core to who you are and people feel you're inauthentic. And so there's no answer to getting it right other than get it right.
1: Yeah. But I think that's such an important point because, um, you know, we're all about understanding and helping our clients apply the recipe for success of challenger brands, if you will. What is it about some businesses that make them grow faster than others? And ultimately that comes down to, and there's frameworks and definitions and all this stuff that actually goes into it. But fundamentally what it comes down to, if you can only identify one thing, is these brands and these businesses the way they go to market and of course there's something to be said about the product side as well but when it comes to the remit of marketing they're fit for purpose for the world of today they take advantage of and understand the cultural landscape the competitive landscape the technological landscape the talent landscape fit for purpose and being fit for purpose at any given time is one thing but being fit for purpose in an era when things constantly change is another, and you gotta find that balance of what is it that you need to probably very aggressively uh, maintain and keep the way it is, and what parts of it need to change in order to allow you to be fit for purpose as the world changes around you. So I think that's a really interesting conversation. Um, one, One other question just on the acquisition side of things, not specifically about that, but I think it's an interesting angle into this. So, you know, again, Challenger incumbent, that's kind of what we're fascinated by. And so I think it's interesting looking at The Athletic versus The New York Times, if you will, Challenger media company, incumbent media company. Obviously there's the content, the events, the advertising, all of that integration. But have you spent much time with, I assume there's a marketing team at The Athletic. And I'm just curious if you see Uh, a different perspective or how you're kind of integrating what they've done to build their brand with what you're doing and your team for the New York Times brand?
0: Yeah, well, what I should say is that the, you know, the acquisition just closed not very long ago. So we're, um, and one of the things we really are doing is actually in both the cases of Wordle and The Athletic, although Wordle's not, you know, doesn't have a big team behind it, like The Athletic does. We're moving very intentionally, meaning, there's, you know, the, the idea is to the, the athletic has been just super successful and we want to keep that magic and not, you know, feel this pressure to jump in there and, 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 and change anything that, that that's really important just to, just for the sake of doing so. So the, their like you said, their team has done a really great job and, and the goal is to preserve that and to see what we can add to that to accelerate growth, as opposed to seeing something that we need to like, overhaul and change around so the the core of who the athletic is and its proposition of you know unlocking the passion that people have for teams and leagues is something that we're you know there's no intention of of, of messing with in any way shape or form
1: yeah I, w- I was actually curious if maybe there's something to learn from them hey there here's this challenger brand in the space that's been super successful can we take some of that challenger marketing mindset model and and bring that into what you're doing with the core brand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the like the the connection they have with their subscriber base is really enviable. And so uh certainly something we're we're studying, you know, both at the emotional level and at the you know, at the at the mechanical level, technological level. You know, the other thing I'll say about the just about the times overall is you know, one of the things we, we really like, the times is a, you know. Super well known brand, and few brands our size have the kind of presence we have. So, I'm not going to call us a, a challenger brand, but the mindset that we've really tried to instill is like rather than see ourselves as the leader in a long standing industry that's saturated, we see ourselves as a player in, an, in, in a category that's barely taken off. Um, and that's subscription supported journalism. You know the reality is there's 180 to 200 million people who are reading news just in this country, digital news in this country every month, and the number of people who pay for that is a small fraction. You know, The Times itself we have 100, you know, 150 plus million people who come every month, and the number of subscribers is in a you know, is in the seven to eight million range, and. That picture another business that has that kind of ratio of people who interact with the product regularly to the people who pay for it. And so our job is, I mean, almost no other business could survive, right? And so our job is to close that gap and to show people that what the journalism worth paying for exists, you know, and you get the quality of journalism you pay for. So if you're not paying for it, you should ask yourself a question and that's what our job is and so that gives us more of a of a challenger mindset depending what you mean by that of like we're in a category that needs to be grown grown and built and we have to earn people's you know understanding of what it is we're doing it's not a habit that 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 everyone we want to be doing is doing yet yes they're re- they're reading and interacting with the news but they're not paying for it they don't have a subscription relationship with a news provider or more than one news provider at the scale that we want them to. Now, that number is changing a lot. And we're really, you know, the the inflection rate is all there, but there's still a long way to go.
2: And I think that's the most fascinating, but also the most difficult thing that you have now taken on as a challenge. To your point, it's about constantly earning that subscription constantly earning the uh, the the fact that they are now paying for the content that they like you know just like a lot of the uh, set of the videos on demand that are based on subscription payments not freemium for instance um and that of course takes away the the burden of advertising uh which people who don't want to pay have to take on that of course requires as well the classic marketing challenge of having the right levels of excitement you know you're known in in our in our days at unityvert. As you said to us this earlier in the call, how you always work on transforming the mundane to magical. Uh, Every business and every brand wants to be preferred, but that requires compelling differentiation. What, in your view, is the single most important differentiating sort of superpower of New York Times in its entirety?
0: It's the care and craft that goes into the creation of the journalism. Um, And if you look at the ad campaigns we've been running, and, and I should say of the people who are doing the journalism as well, all the campaigns we've been doing explore that from different angles. So, you know, the the if you look at The Truth is Worth It from a few years ago, what those ads did was they highlighted how hard it is to get the story and all the obstacles that journalists can face in getting, you know, in getting that story all the way down to some people who literally try to stop it from happening right? Um, As we, particularly in cases where we're showing truth to power. And, and so it's, it's really about, it's, it's interesting because I think the most of the ads we've done are some version of how the sausage gets made, you know, as a, as a genre of ad, which typically don't work very well because they tend to be about you, not about the, the audience. And in this case, they've worked because the process of telling you how we make the journalism helps earn your trust. When you realize all of the expertise that these journalists have, that they put into this independent, original journalism, you understand why we believe that that helps you on your own path to find the truth. And that journalism alone isn't, isn't sufficient, but it's, impo- it's, it's one important tool that people have to to help them figure out what you know what's what the what are the facts
2: that sounds compelling to me
1: so i wish that we had more time there's so much more that i want to get into but i'm just conscious we probably only have five or six more minutes so maybe let's talk a little bit about digital transformation i think we've talked around it but before we press record you were talking about kind of this mix of things that's required that needs to overlap between brands, business, kind of internal motivation of employees in order to deliver effective digital transformation. So can you talk a bit about your perspective on that and maybe talk about, you know, again, we've touched on it a little bit, but bring it all together in terms of how you've been able to help drive that digital transformation agenda at the New York Times.
0: Yeah, look, I think one reason that we've done very well is that Our mission, our brand, our business, you know, the employee proposition, we see them as all part of a suite of things. And so one of the the reasons that's so important for us is like our mission is to seek the truth and help people understand the world. We don't control what the facts are. So we follow, you know, we, whatever the, our job is to surface those facts, whether they, you know, whatever, whatever, wherever they lead, sometimes that can make you feel challenged in your existing thinking. You may not like where the facts lead all the time, right? You know, just as a reader, as you know, you're, uh, and what's interesting is I think in, in some businesses you could say, well, give the reader, give the customer what they want, right? In, in the case of, of our business, if you do that, you miss the underlying proposition, which is to help them understand the world. Sometimes the world isn't what you want it to be. And so it's really incumbent on us to not do what only works in the short term, not only give the customer what, it, what they think they're looking for, but to, to look at the long-term relationship of what the customer wants, which is to challenge their thinking, to help them you know understand the truth, no matter how inconvenient it is. And so that gives us this sort of permission through our mission to have patience with our business. You know, the folks making the journalism don't think about the business impact in any way. They just run the journalism. But because the mission is the same thing that people want from us, that's why we're able to grow. If they were different, what would happen is, you know, we would put something out on the content and people would say, Well, that's not what I wanted to read about, you know, and but there isn't that reaction because that's not what I wanted to read about is part of our proposition, right? And so you get the point. I think it applies even outside of a, of a content business is the, you know, what do you believe is so integral to your customer relationship that you would be willing to lower your short term business results for it, you know, because you believe that it's critical to the long term relationship. That to me is the definition of brand and the definition of mission. And so as long as those things come together, then ultimately your business success comes from the fact that you keep amplifying that mission and that and that brand.
1: How do you stay on top of again, especially for a business like yours, a brand like yours that's in the literally in the middle of all the change that's happening in the world? How do you stay on top of an understanding and a connection with your customer because i think ultimately all innovation all business growth comes from a understanding and ideally a differentiated understanding of the customer you're trying to reach to be able to unlock value for them through your brand or through your product or through your service and so you know to a certain extent good marketing needs to start and end with an understanding of the customer how do you do that at the new york times
0: yeah i mean look i think it's a combination of internal external Right. We have a an expert audience insights team and a really first class data and analytics team and they all work together. The audience insights team is part of marketing and the data and analytics is separate, but we all try to work together and, and, and try to make sure that we understand who the audience is. You know, it's important to say that obviously the journalists work independent of that, right? You know, that their thing is they follow they follow the they follow the facts and there's much less of a you know customer in a research sense going on because that's the proposition of the journalism. But from like a, a business opportunity and from a marketing perspective, you know, we use a combination of those insights and the analytics that we have. You know, again, we're a digital first business. So we've got, you know, lots of analytics that are really powerful to us. And then we couple that with just looking outside. You know, I'm a believer that the it's a lot easier to look for analogies in other in other businesses you know, than, than it is to um, totally invent something new. I mean, Dean knows this, but you know, when we launched Axe in the U.S. back in 2002, we did it with a simple question, which was how would a movie studio launch a deodorant? Um, at the time, you know, it was the Blair Witch Project had just happened. And so we we had taken that coupled with a little bit of MTV and said like, if if they ran this, what would they do? And that's how we did the launch. And that made it feel fresh and different just because we were looking outside for our inspiration.
1: So unfortunately, we are out of time. But the last question that I always ask all guests, and I'm actually gonna ask Dean this first and then come to you, David. What is one thing, the one thing that people listening to this conversation should do differently now that they've heard it? Dean, what's one thing that people should do differently based on what David said today?
2: I was very moved by what David shared about having a singular mission that really brings everyone together, whichever role they have, whether it's the business, whether it's the writers, whether it's you know the editors, it's, it's the one thing that pulls everyone in the same direction. I think that's what makes it authentic, and ultimately that's what makes it very compelling and very magnetic.
0: If it, for one thing, for me, it's about start with telling the story internally. A, it's a great test case, but B, I think that ultimately, Customers in the outside world can tell what's going on inside. Maybe not in the short run, but pretty quickly. And so in the end, if your own staff believes it and understand or pointed in a similar direction, that's a pretty good sign that you're, you know, it's a prerequisite to then making that change on the outside, I think.
1: Just thinking that's really good advice for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know it's an early stage startup there's new people joining there's a lot of change I really need to make sure that I'm starting on the inside so that that can be reflected on the outside so I learned something today for sure Aww. David thank you so much for making the time it was great to finally sit down and chat Dean I appreciate you stepping into the co-host chair once again I will let you both get back to your days um, but thank you and we'll talk again soon
0: Eric, thank you. Always great to see you, David. Yes, great to see you, Dean, as always. And uh, thank you both for the opportunity.
1: Take care. Take care, everyone. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.